0: Who is guarding the Canadian way of life? Let's ask ourselves that question. Who are the gatekeepers?
1: Welcome to the Northern Sentinels podcast. Today I sit down with Mr. Shwaib Rahim, a new Canadian originally from Afghanistan. Shwaib spent much of his youth outside of his home nation, but always felt compelled to return to help his people. In 2011... With a newly minted master's from Duke University, he did just that. Soon after arriving at Kabul, he started working on a defense contract and eventually made his way to the Ministry of Defense, where he progressed to be the deputy CFO. After leaving defense, he was the mayor of Kabul and then represented his country in the negotiations with the Taliban in Doha before coming to Canada. He has a remarkable journey. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Shwaib Rahim. Schweib, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to to do the podcast. It's great to meet you in person, and uh, and thank you for inviting me into your home. Well, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be
0: uh, interviewed, I guess, and it's
1: an honor to host you. Uh, so, I mean, we've spoken a couple of times previously. We don't uh, we don't know each other well, um, but uh, I think you've got a, a fascinating story. And I mean, I I'd like to start by finding out where, where where people's families have come from. And uh, so your parents, you know, where where do your parents come from? Uh, so both my parents are from
0: Afghanistan. Both my parents are from northeastern Afghanistan, a province called Badakhshan, which is uh, uh, a, a province, mountain, it's a mountainous, very remote. Um, and uh, it borders China, and we border Tajikistan and so it's one of those very quote-unquote strategic provinces um, and so both my parents are from there uh, but both grew up in in cities both grew up in Kabul so they're city folk but our families are like a majority of our families are still considered rural particularly on my father's side so we still have like land and villages and remote areas. And so that kind of informs a lot of my upbringing um, where, you know, I've been to uh, a lot of places, etc. But, you know, when I try to see myself and, you, and everybody does this, you know, your roots and who you are and where you're coming from, I go back to, I don't go back to the city. city right. I go back to... Badakhshan to Darwas, which is a very very remote place, which I haven't been to yet, by the way. Okay. So that that's it's a very so conceptually it becomes very hard because you're you're basing a lot of who you are on a, a concept which you might not necessarily grasp firsthand, but through others and through your family and through right. your cousins and through your stories. Yes, and so uh, that's where my
1: parents are from not to, not to get
0: too sidetracked. Yeah, know?
1: no, that's I think that's important and so I mean you come from a rural family, but you said your parents grew up in the city. Yeah. Um, was that uh, your grandparents making a deliberate choice to move them to the city or did they make a choice when they got to a certain age to do that?
0: Well, I mean so the for my uh, my father's different, the story is different than my my mother's story. So my father uh, was good at school, and he got accepted into a boarding school in Kabul. So he topped his class, and the schooling system at that time was if you're the top student of the school, you, you, you get entrance into boarding school in Kabul. So when he was 12, he left home at a very young age. He was the first, well, he wasn't the first brother, but he was the youngest to be academically gifted, Uh, he went to the city and his brothers and the family decided we're going to invest in him. So his older brothers, one of his older brothers uh, let go of his career ambitions and went and worked and supported my father. And his eldest brother also supported my father through his academic journey. And so he grew up in Kabul while everybody else was still so that was a, a deliberate choice that the family, particularly the brothers, made. Um, so that, that just creates a very strong bond between yeah. the family that way. Um, and then so my father got into you know, university, politics, etc., and and then so he supported, and he still supports to this day, my extended family. Um, my mother's side, very different. Uh, my mother's, my maternal grandfather passed away, my grandmother remarried, and so there was a movement situation. They were in the village. They moved to a... Actually, that's, this is a story worth telling because my mother's stepbrother... So, you know, village... There's a lot of uh, marriage and remarriage and second wife, third wife situation in Afghanistan. It's, it's, it's very common. Um, and so, my, my mother's stepbrother who was, at that time, 14, 15. They they share a father, of course, but from different mothers. So when my maternal grandfather passed away, my mother was in a village with her younger sister, and my uncle, my step-uncle, essentially, 14-year-old, decides that my younger sister has to go to school, and if she stays in the village, she cannot go to school. And so he single-handedly at the tender age of 14, supporting a family, travels for about two days to get to that village, convinces the elders and the the situation that I have to take my younger sister and raise her in the city so she can go to school and takes her, takes her from a village uh, to Mazar, another city. And she lives with them until she finish high, finishes high school, and then she then goes to university. And then she becomes who she is, um, all because of a deliberate decision of a fourteen-year-old that I don't want my sister to grow up illiterate or uneducated. Basically, mm. that uncle is in Canada. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that step uncle of mine, yeah? and those are the cousins that I have. They're in Canada. Okay. And so I speak to him about it, and he describes the story to me, and it's like a it completely, it's like a turning point in, in life. You know, mm. just the, the option to go to school. Um, and so these moments really stand out. You know, you ask somebody where you're from, you know, the, the geographic location is irrelevant. You know, like wherever you are on the planet, it's just what, the sky, mountains, roads, rivers, jungles, whatever but it's a collection of those memories and those decisions that people made at that point in time. And so these are the recollections that I have of who I am. People made tough decisions, bold decisions, unpopular decisions at the time and completely changed, um, the course of my parents' life, therefore my life. And so I, am ai am a, I'm a, Strong believer in, in these kind of uh, moments, if you may, and uh, you know you don't always get it right, but you you try to you try your best to make sure that it's very hard to know when you're in such a moment yourself. Right. But if you have if you have clarity of purpose and you have clarity of values, I think that makes it somewhat easier.
1: And, uh, I mean, interesting you say that, right? I mean, it's because um, you weren't born in Afghanistan. No. Right? So um, you said, I mean, that it is, so you bring a, uh, obviously you bring a, an interesting perspective as an Afghan who wasn't born in Afghanistan for a very specific reason. Yep. So what? Why? Why were you not born in Afghanistan? Where were you born?
0: Well, why was I not born in Afghanistan? Well, Moscow and the Kremlin might have had something to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) That which is old is new again. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, So when the Soviets invaded, um, both my parents' families... Uh, Fled the country. Uh, There were a lot of bombings in the villages. People who were considered uh, anti communist or non communist or a threat were targeted. I've had relatives who disappeared and whose names and bodies showed up decades later. Um, And so my father was politically active, so he fled. Uh, my mother's family also left because things were getting very tough. And uh, so they met in Pakistan. They met in Peshawar uh, and got married. And so I was born in Pakistan during the peak of the Soviet invasion and the war. And so I grew up in an extremely intense Environment where people were essentially fighting to reclaim our country, or that's what we thought we were doing. We were doing that. I mean, the Soviets were, the Soviets were doing what they are doing now to Ukraine, more mm-hmm. or less. Uh, but I mean, now when you look back at it, it's just you just look at different dimensions. Uh, but anyhow, as a child, you don't know these things. As a child, all you know is what's important and what affects you and your family. And what affected our family was that we could not go back to our home because, well, the Soviets were there and we had to regain our freedom. And the whole world was on our side. My father was worked in the media at that time and he worked a lot with embassies and foreign missions and he did a lot of traveling. He went to DC a lot, went to London a lot, spoke to a lot of the parliaments and uh, senators and all of that to garner more support. Similar to what's happening, I'm sure, with a lot Mm. of uh, Ukrainian folks um, trying to garner greater support. Um, So um, I rarely saw my father growing up. He was just always busy. Um, But I knew that this, this, our existence depended on our struggle to get back our country. The notion of country, uh, you know, I I, and my siblings aren't like this, by the way, because they were too young, either not born or born Mm. after this wave. They don't have the same sentiment. Um, So the notion of country and nation and people and serving and fighting for what's not the greater good. um, These notions informed a substantial part of my life uh, and continue to inform um, my decision-making. So, um, you know, it's... So I felt so the fact that I wasn't physically born inside what's known as Afghanistan, that kind of, in a way, it has its effect on humans, in a way put me in a spot where I had to really go out of my way to prove that I am worthy of, you know, so you become a bit more mm. intense. Right. Um, so that's, that's how, that's how uh, my, my thinking was, was affected. And I think it was, it was a generational thing. So people at that age level in that environment generally were affected the same way the personalities are different but that's that's how it was
1: so that impacted you in that way and and I'm sure in no small part because of the role that your father played in a bit of a sort of government in exile or you know diplomats in exile what but as a, as a nation as an Afghan identity what, what do you think that the impact of that um, of the Soviet invasion had on on the country or at the how Afghans viewed themselves. Well, that's a tricky one.
0: So Afghanistan is unfortunately extremely polarized now as a country and as a society. And one of the factors behind this polarization was the Soviet invasion because you had you had people who were pro-Soviet. Who were happy that this happened. You had people who were anti-Soviet who were not happy and this happened. You had the general population who wasn't, you know, in any camp and just tried to survive. And so these cleavages kind of hardened over time because, you know, you fight. You know, people lose lives. People lose property. People, people, Um, confront each other and clash and so the Soviets left but we were left with chunks of you know political leanings and groupings um, which affect this broader notion of what it means to be from Afghanistan oh somebody who is a Mujahideen who fought the Soviets says I'm a patriot I fought for the independence of my country somebody who was a Soldier in an army supported by the Soviets said, no, I'm a patriot. I lost a limb fighting for this country. And I see you as a rebel, as somebody who was hurting the country. No, I didn't see the Soviets as a threat to me. And so at that time, that soldier was the enemy to me and to us. Now, I don't see that soldier as enemy anymore. I see myself and I see that soldier as kids in a playground being played by an adult and fighting each other, right? That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. And so, so it becomes, it's, it's just tragic that decades passed by and a people um, a people's sense of unity was damaged because of a war which was not our doing, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the, the 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 worst part is that that episode repeated itself twice, three times over the past forty years. And so, as you can imagine, the number of groupings and subgroup is just ridiculous. It's just so hard. Mm-hmm. So 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 if you ask ten people from Afghanistan this question, what does it mean to be? From Afghanistan, you will probably get ten different answers. I mean, I mean, it's true for any country. It's a conceptual notion. What does it mean to be Canadian? What does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be Japanese? Um, It's very subjective. Uh, A very subjective answer would 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 be given. Uh, But in but in a context like Afghanistan, which you know experienced severe conflict, and you've been you've been exposed to that. Um, so you have a deeper understanding of this. Uh, it just becomes very hard. People, people reach a point where they can no longer bear the pain. They can no longer tolerate that suffering. And so the mind just disconnects. It's a survival mechanism. We just disconnect. You're like, you know, my patriotism is causing me pain. Is causing my family pain. It's causing my children pain. What am I going to do with this patriotism? What is it good for? Why? And so a lot of people make that choice very early on. But in our case, 40 years. You know, so it's, you know, you can't really blame a lot of people for making that choice.
1: No, I I think it's really, I I imagine that most Canadians... um, truly most Canadians can't even wrap their minds around the, the generational trauma that those kind of events have on a, have on a population. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, just hearing you watching you tell this, this, you know, speak these words and, and talk about this. I mean, there's a, there's a palpable, um, you know, level of emotion to, to this. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's an important message. I mean, about, I mean, what these these types of conflicts do to do to a population, and then repeatedly, I like guess you said, right? This this wasn't a something that ended when the Soviets left, but then there was a took number, on, yeah, different right. shapes and forms, yeah, so, so the Soviets leave, and then what happens for the Rahim family? Well, the Soviets leave, and so we're in Pakistan, and
0: then um, my father becomes uh, uh, a diplomat. He is appointed as representative of uh, the government of the time in the United Nations in New York. So we come to New York. (laughs) So Pakistan to New York. Pakistan to New York, yep. Uh, and uh, we come to to New York, we're in New York for a few months and then it's my wife, she'll come (laughs) say hi and then um, we, so then he is then appointed charge and takes over the embassy of Afghanistan in Washington, D.C. Uh, So we moved to D.C. and my father takes over the, takes over the oh, going now, takes over the embassy, and we are so he's in charge of the Afghanistan Embassy in Washington, D.C. He's the representative of the government in, in Washington. And so we're there for two years, and then um, my father decides, for a variety of political reasons I'd later find, to leave the U.S to go back. And then, so we're back. We're in Pakistan for a year. He's a diplomat there. Um, Some stuff happened. We're back in Afghanistan for a little while. He's appointed to China. We go to China for two years. My father's ambassador there. We're in Beijing. And then the Taliban come. They they capture Kabul. The first resistance begins. And my father is very closely involved in that resistance as um, uh, as the fight goes on. He's involved in a diplomatic front, so then he becomes ambassador in Tajikistan, in Dushanbe, which is was like where Across a lot the of the exactly a lot of yeah. the supply chain is right. So we're there for a year, and then he becomes general consul in Mashhad in Iran, where also a lot of the fighting against the Taliban was happening at that time. Now, not so much. <laughs> now the Iranians are in bed <laughs> with the Taliban. So, anyhow. Um, so, and then 9-11 happens, and then the Taliban disintegrate within pretty much 24 hours. And within two weeks, a new government is formed, and in, in, the bond process happens, and my father is appointed in the cabinet. So,
1: uh, how old are you at that point? I am 17 years old. Okay, so you, you've had a, a, an interesting sort of chunk of your formative years before adulthood. Yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. Traveling to all these different over. places and, and correct, seeing yeah. your country, you know, the Soviets leave, the Taliban come in, then. Yeah. All of it. Right. All of it. And so I am,
0: what's going on in my head is, well, tribe, you are living a comfortable life. While your country is going through a lot. This is a privilege. And this there's a reason for this. And the reason is that you have to then contribute back when you can. Right? So, I mean, there's a bit of a guilt, survivor's guilt also there. But that's how I friend it to myself. I'm like... You can't, and I mean, again, because of village upbringing, the whole family is there. So, you mm. know, I, I was very close to the suffering and all of that. I mean, I understood it. I was a step away, but I never really enjoyed it. I have, I have friends who told me, who found out when they said, oh, what did your father do? I said, he's a diplomat. He's like, you don't sound like a diplomat's kid. <laughs>
1: What like, is it, What is a diplomat's kids say? I know, <laughs> I that, that's exactly, that
0: was my question. And they're like, well, diplomat's kids are, you know, pompous and, you know, they're highbrow and they're blue blood and this and that. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. Um, and so in, in all those years, I just, there was this fire, there was this urge, you know, take that upbringing during the Soviet. And then I'm like, okay, I have, what are you, what are you doing, tribe? Your father's doing all this stuff, but what are mm. you doing? What are you doing? Like, How are you contributing to this, to this struggle? Um, so that was always there. And I never belonged anywhere I went. Never. I was always the outsider. I just never associated with any of those spaces in a long-term way. I never made long-term friends, long-term connections. Everything was like, oh, I'm going to be here for a little while, but I have something to do. Right, You know, like I'm going to do this temporarily, but I, I have a mission
1: to go to. Okay. So it didn't, it wasn't so much about the fact that you, you didn't, you weren't physically in one place long. It was this sort of long-term, yeah. sh- your share of the task yeah. as an Afghan that, to get back to. As, that's, yes, that's what I, that was it. That
0: right. is the, that is why I was alive. And that is why I I was given the luxury of having a proper education and an upbringing, while a lot of people did not. And that's how I constantly spoke to myself and that's what I told myself. And um, so then, you know, the, the 9-11 happened and the Taliban went and the Republic government was formed. Uh, then I went to university. Uh, so where did you go to university? I went university. to Malay- I went to my university in Malaysia. I did an electronics engineering degree, <laughs> like your chemical engineering. Yeah, um, and I did that because, of course, my father told me, "Son, engineers, you know, you need to become an engineer." I'm like, "All right." I mean, I didn't have any. Pr- I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to do, so I just said okay to the, what my father said. Yeah, it's a powerful influence, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, do you, what does I mean? I mean, I didn't have grounds to refute. I genuinely didn't know what I wanted. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I soon I very quickly realized that that was
1: not the smartest choice for me to make. Was it Was it as fast as mine in like the um, first week of chemical engineering? No, it I went, wasn't that fast. No. Okay. It took me a while. I mean, I'm a, I'm
0: a pretty stubborn person, right? So I was a bit hard-headed at first. I kept on pushing, 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 pushing. I hit a wall in... The third semester I you I, know like, I, I genuinely realized that this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life, right I, it finally hit me hmm. I was just I was too busy, I was too warm to understand what was happening, you yeah. know <laughs> what the hell did I get myself into yeah. And then, but then I, re- I realized that if I change majors or if I do something else, that would mean I lose a year, and that would mean more financial burden on my family. That would mean I everything just like is delayed. And I was like, okay. And then there's the honor of oh, my son couldn't do engineering. And I was like, okay, sure. You just gotta suck it up and just gotta. <laughs> Sometimes
1: just forward is the. Yeah. This
0: is the way to go. Yeah. So so I so I graduated. Um, I mean, I was I was smart enough. I had the foundation to finish an engineering. I mean, I don't want to sell myself too short. I did a proper engineering no, degree, I, but but not the excellent stellar standard that one expects oneself to, to live up to. And then I got a job in Singapore. I worked in the tech field for about two years. Uh, I found the least technical job in the tech space. (laughs) Uh, So I worked with a lot of research and development folks, marketing folks, sales folks, work with clients, etc. And then I left Singapore. Everyone was like, why are you leaving Singapore? It's Singapore. I was like, no, I have, you know, I have stuff to do. And the only reason I'm here is because I'm still trying to figure out how to go back, you mm-hmm. know, how to where, what's the entry point going to look like? And then I found it, the whole scholarship, Fulbright thing. So I left Singapore. I went back. I applied for that scholarship, the American scholarship. I secured it. I got an offer from, I got an offer from two, I got an offer from Northwestern, I think. Northwestern, yeah, university. And then I got an offer from Duke. And then I picked Duke and I went to, I went to do a master's in engineering management. Uh, um, Two years. I do, it's a it's a one and a half year, but okay. I finished it in one year. Okay. Um, and then my friends were getting job offers from you know Apple, Google, you know Citibank, Wall Street comp- folks. Just cherry picking every that's that pretty, was the pretty attractive stuff yeah yeah that right. was yeah yeah so about I mean as a new degree engineers business savvy that's that was the in major you know uh, you had Deloitte you know McKinsey all of them um I was like not me <laughs> I have to I gotta so was this the point was this the point where yeah this yeah I did not pursue that yeah. I just simply didn't. No, I mean, I, I I had to go back. I, I, it wasn't like something was waiting for me. I just had to go back. I didn't know what was waiting for me, but I had to go back. I was like, this is it, tribe. This is it, done. You're done. You have an American education now, American degree. If you can't make it, nobody can. That's simply it. Yeah. And then, so I was about to finish. My father called me. He spent an entire hour scolding me, telling me, how i'm wrong and why there's nothing here for you in afghanistan it's just all mafia and this and that and you're going to waste your education throw your life away A father cares for it. in kabul son, right? at the time he was not in kabul no he was in saudi okay he was ambassador in saudi arabia nobody was in kabul right none of my core family was in
1: kabul yeah.
0: and so they didn't want their something to go back to it's a tough life in you know, when the father goes through, he knows. He doesn't want his son to. I was like, uh, okay, uh, okay. I wasn't going to argue with my father. So I told myself, I said, look, all these big notions of patriotism and give back and live a meaningful life, all that means nothing. You, this is the decision point. You have to make that decision now. And I'm like, I'm young. I'm smart. I have, uh, I have the right credentials, I'm ambitious, I'm a risk taker. I'm, I have the perfect profile. I'm at checklist, check, 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 check. If I'm not going to go back, then who the hell is that? Who's gonna, who am I going to expect to go back and do anything? Yeah. So I book my ticket and I go. I'm, like, I'm not having a conversation with anybody. So not, not nobody in my immediate family or friend, circle of friends, nobody So nobody knows approved. you're going. Nobody approved me going. Okay. Nobody approved, not a single person. And I go back. To um, Kabul. I go back to Kabul, yeah. I stay with some relatives at the airport. This cousin of mine comes, picks me up. I'm looking around. This is my first time in Kabul, by the way. No, this is not my first time. First time moving to live in Kabul. I pass through a lot. Right. Um, I have a job interview set up. I go there. doesn't work out. Uh, I'm somewhere somebody tells me hey are you interested in this I'm like sure they set up an interview boom I get the job I get an offer very attractive offer and uh, so I'm, t- telling my, I'm calling my father he's very anxious you know? parents tend to be anxious for their kids right absolutely and I'm like yeah I got an offer he's like yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. So did you accept it? I'm like, no, I rejected the <laughs> offer. He's like, what? I'm like, what? I'm like, no, it wasn't good enough. I told him to up, up the offer. <laughs> he was like, what is my son on? What did they teach you at Duke? What is this? Right. Yeah. So, so, so I negotiated a better offer. I accepted it and I started working as a program manager for this very large uh, military contract. That's So the American-funded contract, we had to set up the telecom and communication system for the army and the police, the secure system. So I was the technical guy who understood it, but could do management and client management, stuff like that. I replaced this uh, uh, retired U.S. Marine person who apparently had damaged his relationship with the uh, contracting officer or something, some ego fight happened, whatever. So I replaced, so I had big shoes to fill, basically. So I got that role. Um, and I, so I'm meeting people and people are introducing me. Hey, this is Shribe And he just came back from the U.S. And but Anybody, you know, like colleagues or staff or friends or whatever. Just say, this is "This he just came back from the U.S. He's like, oh, hi, he just came back from the U.S.? yeah like, Why? Right. I mean, they're genuinely asking me. Yeah, why did you come back from the US? I'm like, uh, well, you know, I tried to play my part and uh, you know contribute back and they're like, yeah, 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 okay. And nobody took me seriously, right? So once, twice, three times, and some people just laughed at my face and it really bothered me, right? That nobody nobody understood this decision. Nobody, not a single person. At that point, understood my decision, and so I reached a point where where I got introduced to this person. He said, "Oh, Shai just came back from the US," and he's like, "Oh, you came back from the US?" I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Why?" I'm like, "Well, because I'm crazy." He's like, uh, "Just blank looked at me, looked at me." He's like, "Okay, well, clearly I can't have a conversation with this guy. He's made up his mind." So that was that was. The judgment on my decision, you'd you'd have to be an idiot. You'd have to be crazy to leave a promising career path and life in the U.S. to start with nothing back in Afghanistan. But that is the choice that I made.
1: So you you have that choice you've made. And there's a misalignment where people don't understand why you've made that choice. And you're also an Afghan who hasn't lived in Afghanistan. Correct. um, For an extended period of time. So did, and I'll, I'll make a parallel here. I have a number of Francophone friends who've lived outside Quebec for years. And when they go back to see family, they don't necessarily use the right expressions or, so did you find that as well, sort of a cultural misalignment as well? Of course. Massive. Massive. Uh, So how did you, how do you... Or what did that feel like then? Or how did you manage that? Not just the professional side, um, but now you've got the personal side of your life as well that is, you're trying to figure out.
0: Well, I think, I mean, now that I think of it and I haven't really thought of it this way, but I think I, I, everything started with that decision and everything started with that decision. And then I said, okay, I have made this decision. Now I will make it work. So where's the challenge? What do I need to do? So the challenge was I didn't fit in socially. So I had to figure that out. I had to pick up the lingo, walk walk the way people walk, talk the way people talk, just completely indulge in that, in the mannerisms, in the so- in that, just fully immerse myself in it. Um, I don't understand the system, just. Just jump first, ask questions later, you know, right. like that's, that was the strategy. Like that's the zone. There's no other way. So I went on a very aggressive networking, socialization spree of do as much as you can and as, as quickly as you can. And that worked because in a matter of, in a matter of, how long was it? 2011, 2000 Sixteen <laughs> in five years, I became deputy mayor of the capital of my country. So, so it worked. I com- I disconnected myself completely with the outside world. I went all in. I was like, "This is it. This is what I have been grooming myself for mm-hmm. all my life." Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but I've been preparing myself yeah. sure. for this, and so I, I just, I just went all in. And um, there, was a, there was a, you know, it, 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 it gave me a level of calm and a level of peace that I did not have before. Because you, for people who don't, who, for people who haven't experienced this, it might be very hard to explain. But the sense of belonging is almost fundamental. As you grow up as a child, if you don't feel like you belong in an environment, that just shakes you to your core. Nothing else fits in place, right? And and so finally, I, like, filled that gap. I addressed that concern. I was like, this is home. I've made a home for myself here. I got married here. My child was born here. I,
1: I, have, I have roots here. Right. I'm somebody here. Were those were those the seminal moments that allowed you to make that conclusion that getting married, having a child, yeah, to in me, yes,
0: there, yes, there was a checklist. I yeah. had to. I mean, I didn't actually have a checklist, <laughs> but in my mind, that was I had to do these things. It had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, there were many, many security incidents, suicide attacks car bombs uh, that I missed or missed me by minutes. Each of those incidents made my determination stronger. Made me more resolved. I was like, this is, if I survive that, now I'm definitely not leaving. Right. I had the option and me and my wife kept on arguing about this. We still, we still kind <laughs> of do. Um, well, maybe I mean now in hindsight, I think I can understand where, because I grew up outside and people who grew up inside understood the risks and were through. They had been through a lot of those processes and I hadn't been through a lot of those processes.
1: Yeah, there's, there's probably more fatigue. Absolutely. Yeah, for
0: them. Absolutely. I was still fresh. I was like, no, I can do right. this, Right. Uh, we had the option to leave 2014, 15, 16. I was like, no, I'm not going anywhere. This is this is it. You know, I'm I'm
1: sticking to my guns, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stick around. Um, so how? So you're sticking around, and then you just mentioned how you become the deputy mayor of Kabul. Yeah so how do you how do you go from someone who's never never lived in Kabul? Yep, to come in to and now go, next. Well, maybe it's not next thing you know, but you're you're wow. running running the the capital.
0: well, it's so it looks like a very weird trajectory from the outside, but to understand it, you have to understand the context. So we lost a generation to in the nineties to civil war and conflict. So a generation didn't have the opportunity to educate itself and to become professional. And so when bureaucracy and government and everything was being set up after 2001, it was very hit and miss, you know? It was like you either see people in their 60s, 70s who were from a previous generation, or you would see people who did not have the qualifications. They had a lot of expats doing a lot of the work. So that 10 years, 2001, 2001, and gave the opportunity for a lot of folks to go to university, go abroad, and then come back. And so you had a critical, critical mass of people between the age of 25 to 35 who had advanced degrees in engineering, in medicine, in computer science, in management, in political science. and so. But it was a younger age group. And then from 35 to, let's say, 50, there was nobody there. Mm. That was the generation we lost, right? And so when it, when, when it jumps from people in their late 50s, 50s onwards, it automatically falls, skips a generation and comes to that age group of, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And so just from a pure merit point of view, right? So this was also a very controversial back home, but... There was a wave of young professionals who came into government, uh, and I was in that wave. So people were appointed ministers, deputy ministers, senior directors, general directors with, let's say, one year, two years of experience or no experience. Um, I was appointed deputy mayor after I was in government for about four to five years. So I was way more qualified than a lot of the young people who were coming right. into the government because I understood the ABCs of bureaucracy. And Afghanistan, Af- people don't understand this about Afghanistan. Afghanistan is, you know, the, the land where empires go to die and, you know, graveyard of this and war this, war that. Nobody talks about the Afghan bureaucracy. The Afghan bureaucratic system is probably one of the most resilient on this earth. We have records dating back over a century of somebody requesting a plot of land <laughs> to be taxed in some corner of Kabul. And we have, we can tell you the date. We can tell you the person signing it. We can tell you what was the problem with the order. So we are really serious about our bureaucracy, right? We have gotten that down proper. It has survived many iterations of, of political instability. So to be able to operate at a government institution, you need to understand how that system works. And I understood that much better than most. Um, And so when I was appointed, so our mayors, uh, legally, mayors are supposed to be elected, run for elections. But in our system, because of whatever political reason, the president appoints mayors. So it's an appointed position. All mayors? All mayors across the country. Uh, it's a very centralized system one of the big flaws of the of, of, of our system as a separate conversation so our, our president is more powerful than a king essentially so the president appoints mayor so the president appointed uh, the mayor uh, a young professional same age category and a friend of mine and so I was at the defense I was working in defense at that time I did a lot of good work there people were happy the ministers rotated I kept on getting promoted. I reached a stumbling block where I was like, okay, I have to leave this defense portfolio. I think I've been there for uh, four, four
1: years or so. And, uh, and this I, is an intense four years. This is a very intense this, four years. This isn't like your, your director general in ADM in Ottawa here. You're, <laughs> you're, you're an executive in defense in, in Afghanistan. In, yes. In, yeah. Yeah. So we, so just to talk about that a little bit, maybe we,
0: Drove from Kabul to Garde's 203rd Corps in Taktea, in the east of the country. We stayed there for two nights. We drove from, we flew to Kandahar. We were there for about a week. We did a lot of assessment, research assessment, work with officers, look at the warehouses, systems requirements and all that. We drove, we flew to Helmand, from yeah. Kandahar. We took uh, those uh, those uh, the, the Mech-27s, the helicopter, Russian helicopters. Okay. Uh, we took those. And then there were no helicopters to send us from Helmand. So we drove from Helmand, to 215th uh, Corps Command, to 207th in Herat. So we drove through Helmand. Yes, yeah. we drove through Helmand, Nimrose and, and Her- to yep. Herat. And that's, uh, we, we stayed overnight in Farah. And that was like, that was a Essentially, that was a, a complete gamble. We wouldn't know if we were going to make it or not. We, we just went with a large convoy. And the week after we joined another convoy was attacked there. Like 14 people got killed. And so it was a horrible, horrible route. And so we kept on passing. We, we deactivated two, three... Uh, uh, I keep on forgetting the technical terms. The, 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 the mines, the bids. the the car bombs. Yeah, vehicle borne IEDs improvised explosive device. Yes. So so they deactivated three mines on our path. Um and you know you go around let's say you're driving down the highway in your Humvees and you have Rangers on vehicles, etc. We're like maybe a convoy of 20 vehicles and you come across a very large crater. Let's say this half half side of this room, which was you know it exploded. It was a crater, and you had to drive around it and keep going.
1: And so
0: you know I did I did that for four years.
1: Right. Yeah. No, as a civilian. Right. This is not a what most people in Canada would think of as a uh, a job that a a public servant does. Oh.
0: No, 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 not at all. Uh, even in Af- by Afghanistan standards, we were risk takers. Our team, our group, were, were, we were we used to take a lot of risks because people were very cautious. But that's the extreme we exposed ourselves to. And I was in the front line. I kept on wanting to go more, wanting to do more. And I just had my... I just got married and I had my son born. Uh, but I kept on digging myself deeper into, into the system. Um, so that gave me perspective. That gave me a very strong sense of appreciation of what what things aren't just happening in Kabul in a small bubble. People going to their office and coming back, which tends to be the case for a lot of folks. Um, so that gives you an understanding of, okay, this is what's happening, and this is what it means, and this is the struggle, this is the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it just really, it really bothers me when I see, you know, the Taliban, and they're in power now, but they talking about, oh... Patriotism. We care for this country. You don't care. You don't care about this country. You can't care about a country if you don't care about its people. What do you care about? Mm -hmm. The trees? What, what, what is is it that you care about? The rocks? The mountains? What is it? What is a country if not a collection of individuals and people and what they believe in and what they do and the memories they make together? And just the, the sheer number of people they've killed. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The amount of blood that has been shed, the amount of sacrifice that we have given as a country to, to to defend this notion called Afghanistan, the amount of body bags that keep on being sent to people's homes of their of their young kids. You know, twenty years of that. You know, so it takes a toll. Takes a huge toll. And so, you know, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this. So, you know, when you're part of that, you, you can't complain about this. You can't sweat the small stuff. You're like, Hey, your life's not on the line. You're not in the front line. That person is on the, so you need to do whatever is within your power to help that person. And that's the only thing that, that has meaning. Mm. Everything else is a waste of time. And so that is the, the, the mindset that I, was, that I was in, and I'd like to think that I, I did a thing or two. And so I, I got a very, you know, I, I made very good friends. I had a very good reputation uh, uh, with a lot of um, and generals and officers and junior officers and senior officers because I s- solved problems, right? Military-civilian relations aren't always cordial. right? So, you know, I had to stand my ground. So I had to, I became more aggressive than a lot of the military folks. So, um, so I did that. And I got a presidential medal for something that I did. Uh, I was able to give three months bonus to the entire army, everyone, from the minister all the way to the lowest ranking, a uh, non-commissioned officer and the soldier who were in checkpoints. Three months salary is a lot. Right? Three, yeah. three month paycheck, three months of paycheck because there was waste going on. So I had to fight the ministry, work the bureaucracy, blah, blah, blah. blah. And so that happened. Everybody was very happy, etc. Um, and, uh, but I got a lot of threats also. I tried to introduce, you know, we tried to introduce some measures of transparency. There was a lot of, um, a lot of theft and fraud that was going on. Uh, you know, I put my foot somewhere. I get, I get suspicious calls at night. Um, you know, so I had to survive all of that. Right. Right. There's no handbook for this stuff. You can't Google these things. You just have to figure it out. I had to figure it out. Right. I just had to figure it out. A complicated bureaucracy with huge legal hurdles, a hostile environment with people who would drop you at the blink of an eye. Like I'm not talking about just your whatever, I'm talking about uh, uh like colonels who have like been in three, four wars, or generals who have led battalions and and core commands like mm-hmm. i'm going up against these people right so the tread carefully to say the least right so the fact that i'm sitting here talking to you, <laughs> you know, it's something you figured it out well you know or i got lucky or whatever you mm-hmm. know so so i survived that and then so my friend came here he told me you know this opportunity i said sure you know i can look into that why not so it was a finance portfolio. I was working finance. So I said, okay. So I went through an interview process and everything. So I, I I shifted roles. I became deputy mayor of Kabul. And it was a much smaller role than the defense. Defense is huge and people don't understand. People who don't, like from the outside, you don't understand. Anything that has, anything related to national security and defense is always massive.
1: Mm-hmm. Massive, it's, complex. It's
0: always massive, just just from a sheer size point of view, mm-hmm. right? If you or, if you're ordering uh, boots, you're ordering two hundred thousand boots, right? If you're ordering bed sheets, you're ordering yeah. <laughs> you know, fifty thousand bed sheets. If you're ordering fuel, like thousands of tons. Ordering ammunition, weapons, repair that like, easily everything just explodes.
1: You know, national security is not cheap. Uh, How did that change of focus then in Kabul going from um, that size and scope of national defense um, into being the deputy mayor of a, of a city? I mean, I'm sure the pace was still high, but the scale but, was much different. And, you know, and the focus is different. Yeah, very different. Very, very different.
0: Well, so, I mean, it helped because I, I, got, I went in when I went through everything. I was like Ah this is easy I can do this <laughs> I was like So I was very ambitious I managed to do a lot in the, For the For the city Record revenues Back to back years I had people Who hadn't Who had Hadn't paid the city For a decade These were These were Known Drug traffickers These were known Um uh, we have, we say gossip is, I mean, so land usurpers, basically these were bad folks, the mafia. So I came from the military background, right? So I wasn't intimidated easily, basically. Mm-hmm. So I was able to push, um, uh, some of that reform and take the heat. And I had enough political network to be able to maneuver and not, I mean, you have to be very you can't be an idiot and just go on oh, declaring a war against no, right. you can't do that. It's just you have to be smart about it. you have to have you have to have um, uh, you have to calculate how whether or not you can implement a reform or not. You, I mean you can't be blindly ambitious. that's just a waste of your time, a waste of the organization's time. And so I managed to do I managed to do uh, some good there, um, and then the mayor. Resigned, and then I became mayor. So this is the the friend who... This is the friend, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so he resigned, and then I became mayor, and then so I managed the whole portfolio. Uh, so I did that, basically my, my time with the city. And I'm not a very... I stay away from the media. I am... How'd that work as mayor? Well, I, I stayed away. I stayed away because my father was a diplomat all his life, and he served on the cabinet as well, uh, twice. Uh, So I understood how government bureaucracy works. You're in a position one day, the other day you're not. So you can't think you're top of the world and this will last forever. You can't lose who you are, what you believe in, your relationships, etc. And uh, you can't be under the illusion that you will have all these resources and security the day you don't no longer have this job. And so you have to, with that long-sightedness, you have to make decisions. And so, you know, other people, if their son becomes deputy mayor of a city, usually it's a cause for celebration, right? Usually you would think so, right? Oh, yeah, all that, you know, brag a little bit. I call my, my parents, they were in Saudi at the time. I said, hey, the moment that I um, was appointed uh, as deputy mayor of Kabul. And there's a moment of silence. <laughs> there's a moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> my mother tells me, I'll never forget this. mother tells me, uh, son, you have to be very careful who you socialize with and you have to be very careful when people offer bribes or kickbacks, you have to be very careful about these things, right? You have to make sure that you have to make sure that you are you are um, doing your job and and uh, staying honest and staying staying true because that's that's very important. And I told my mom, I said, like, okay, all right, <laughs> okay. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm your kid, you know. This is our yeah. This is this is something that you don't need mentioning, but the fact that that's the first thing that she mentioned, nothing else, tells you a lot about yeah. the culture in my family. Because um, uh, all we saw were landmines and risks, and we had to maneuver around those risks. And so, with that with that mindset, media and going out in public and just. You know, showing your face and taking the line, everything and you know, enjoying the celebrity status comes at a cost. And that cost is that when things don't work and things don't happen and commitments aren't delivered, which is the norm in any government, let alone the government of Afghanistan trying to provide service during a war, then everything comes down on your head. And so, I had to manage that. I said, okay, I will go out in the media and I will do all that marketing once I actually have delivered a few things. And then I will go and say, okay, I have the credibility because I've done this and this, and now I want to do these things. So that was that was my strategy. Um, and so I had very few media appearances, interviews. Only after I'd done something, I go and I talk about it, and that's it. How did you like the job? Oh, I love the job. Oh, it was everything I I thought it would be. It was extremely satisfying because you immediately saw the result of your work. Whether it was good or bad, if it didn't work, you'd know you failed this. Okay, let's try something else. Let's try this now. Let's try that now. And you work with people from all walks of life. From all walks of life. I remember early on, it was May 30th. Attack on the German embassy—one of the largest attacks in Kabul's Green Zone. Uh, a truck bomb went off, and I was just about to get out of my apartment when the whole apartment, was like five kilometers away, those concrete Russian-made apartments, it shook, and you could hear the sound of the blast. It was horrible, it was a horrible, horrible incident. Uh, over 100 people died instantly, instantly from that explosion because it was rush hour at the heart of the, of the heart of the Kabul, the green zone.
1: And I would imagine <clears throat> most of those people are Afghans who died. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's not. we're not talking about 100 people in the German embassy.
0: No, no. German embassy, they were aware, apparently they had reports and they had moved their staff inside or something. And so, you know, you don't want anybody to get hurt. But of course, these incidents, it was all the local population. Mm-hmm. Um, again, huge crater, in the middle of the city. So the uh, incident happened, I got to know that it was a, that it was a, a truck bomb. And you know what would a normal person do when a truck bomb goes off? At the, at the, what would a normal person do, Chris? Tell me. What would a normal person do?
1: I, I, I would say, and I'm probably not a normal person, um, but I think most people would think, "Huh, the truck bomb is that way. I am going to
0: the go other, way. other way." Correct. Yes. Um, but no, that is, that is not, not what I did. I go to so uh, I go to my wife, kids. Okay, I'm like, all right. You guys are good. They're like, we're good. I'm like, okay. Uh, I got to go to work. So I get in my car. I tell my driver to find a way. Every roads are blocked. We find a way to reach uh, the mayor's office, my office. I was deputy mayor then. And uh, we are one of the first responders. We go to the site, and it's oh, it's horrible. It's bad. It's bad. And we are busy. We, our entire team our city team is busy and overnight we we will we'll clear up collect you know the bodies damages the buildings destroyed and overnight we fill up the crater fill up the road And the next day traffic's going there normal the next morning hmm. of that attack traffic is going exactly at that point normal we just had to make a point we were like we don't care life will go on despite Despite you just indiscriminately killing us, mm-hmm. that is the message that we wanted to send and we sent it. Um, and so that was my life. So that incident happened. So we were there, I was there, you know, supporting, providing whatever, doing whatever we could. And then I came back, and so my secretary tells me okay, so you had a meeting with these, uh, with this. Uh, community representatives these old folks regarding the park near their school what should we do i'm like what do you What you should do hold the meeting tell them to come don't cancel anything so i come back and i have a meeting with them about you know the park in front of their school and they said you know you have to plant more trees our kids are playing at this this part of the city and i'm like yep okay you know find their paperwork did whatever what are you going to do?
1: Life has to carry on. Life
0: has to carry on, yes. And so so being a public servant in Afghanistan meant operating that way. Mm. And everybody did it to a, to, to, to a degree. And unfortunately, I mean, so I don't want to paint too rosy a picture, but unfortunately, I mean, not that this is rosy, but... Um, it's all relative, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, a lot of public servants, rationalized corruption. By saying that I have to provide service against all odds So I'm entitled mm. to a percentage of the cut So people rationalized uh, corrupt practices So it became, it becomes very hard in those environments It just becomes very, very hard You're, it's, you're fighting upstream You're fighting against the entire system Mm -hmm. Um, uh, to to make sure that, you know, kickbacks or bribing and stuff like that are are fought against and are are at a minimum. I mean, bribes and kickbacks exist everywhere. They exist in Toronto. They exist in, with this premiere, I guess, you know, (laughs) they can go anywhere with that conversation. West and the East, so relative. But it's a big part, it was a big part of the conversation, right? So but the but the conflict and the war has a specific impact on 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 that decision making. A lot of people rationalize. they're like, life's too short, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna make some money and get some security for my family
1: mm-hmm. I, I don't care. So that that sort of environment, I mean, did that? Was that a, a factor when you decided that, uh, to, to leave the mayor's office? So, uh,
0: operating in a senior government role comes with the risk of being tainted. So, you have to understand the system and know... What to engage in, what not to engage in, because there's corruption, but then there's perception of corruption. So, because my, my family understood public service, we were extremely sensitive to even the perception of corruption. So, we, we and I, I so I was extremely sensitive in Engaging in talk with contractors, extremely sensitive in making uh, financial decisions. I had to make sure that it's all consensus based. You had to make sure that it's transparent. You had to make sure that bo- because everybody, it's a it's a doggy dog world in general. But in that environment, it's a very hostile environment. No one wants you to succeed, right? No one cares about like a lot of like, unfortunately the, the the number of people who were there for the right reasons kept on reducing and reducing. And by the time the peace process in the Taliban, and the American withdrawal and everything was at its final stages, people realized that, you know, this boat's gonna sink. What do I have in my reserve? What do I have to show? You know, like that. Yeah, okay. So so that mentality is very hard to fight against. So I have, a, I had a, so I used to rent an apartment in west of Kabul. And this is after I left, I left uh, from the mayor's office as 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 mayor. And then I was a senior advisor to the peace ministry, working on the peace process and all of that. So I don't, I didn't own property. I still don't own property and I used to rent, right? So the our, our lease was up and the owner said, well, I'm moving in. So if you could find another place. So we were looking around and we found another place. And so we're moving. And so this um, called my car. We have cars and drivers. So I called my driver and we have to go and do some stuff. And so he came in and he picked me up and he said, oh, the other drivers were asking me where you're going. And I'm like, oh, you know, my boss is moving from his apartment to another apartment. They're like, what do you mean he's moving? They're like, well, he's moving. You're a new place. Wasn't he the mayor of Kabul? Like, yeah, he was the mayor of Kabul. You're telling me the former mayor of Kabul doesn't own property right. in Kabul and he's renting? And I uh, said, yeah, well, that's they, my my driver said. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'm helping him move. And so then he then he stopped. I said, continue the
1: conversation. I know,
0: <laughs> I know how this conversation goes. I'm sure after that they said, What an idiot.
1: That would be the response. Right, another sort of cognitive misalignment. Yeah. yeah.
0: How can you be deputy mayor and mayor, such a powerful position, and not own a house in Kabul? What like what is this? Right? So people expect you to be corrupt. Mm. So the culture had become so toxic. You know like you become the outlier when right. when you know so it becomes just, it just becomes very difficult so you can't have these conversations no one's gonna buy it no one's gonna be like yeah you're like you must have stuffed the money somewhere right you're just must waiting have, for the right Yeah, waiting for the right time exactly to buy that tesla stock or whatever i don't know <laughs> yeah. something right um so so that was that was the environment unfortunately that 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 culture contributed heavily to the dis, dis discrediting of, of of the government and the collapse of, of of the republic. At the in the end, That played a huge, huge, huge part of it.
1: And you, you just mentioned that you were um, you were part of the team, or you were a senior advisor to the on the peace process. Um, I mean, assuming that people you know listening know you know, little about the peace process. Uh, I mean, can you maybe describe a little bit about uh, what that was and, and perhaps provide, um, you know, your your perspective on it that may not have been what was portrayed um, to, to those of us in North America watching it from a distance?
0: So uh, the Doha peace process uh, was uh, a... A, a, a peace process between. So this is a bit tricky to explain, but I have it. I mean, I've spoken about it in at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Actually, there's a link online for whoever would be interested. Mm. To, I'll I'll put that into the show notes as well. I've spoken about it in great great detail. Um, the Doha peace process was a peace process the United States secretly started with the Taliban in 2000. And 18 or 19 it was secret so we don't know when it started um and uh, the u.s government under trump decided that hey you know we're leaving so let's make a deal with it with the with the taliban and the government of afghanistan was excluded from these talks and when the conversation leaked and people realized that there were secret talks going on uh it was huge backlash and uh but uh, the U.S. government of the time, under Trump, uh, kept forcing that process that you have to have, reach a peace deal. And you know, peace processes and reconciliation, it's not just a switch you turn on. These, these are very deep-rooted conflicts. I mean, we were fighting the Taliban before the Americans came, or before anybody came. We were fighting the Taliban. This was not a mm-hmm. fight that... It, it wasn't new. Yeah, it wasn't new, but it wasn't a fight that we picked up because of you. Right. Right. So just because you're leaving, you can't just be arrogant enough to presume that, oh, I'm leaving. So you have no reason to fight anymore. I'm sorry. This is that's not how this is. So anyhow, so th- that arrangement was there and the U.S. signed an agreement with the Taliban In terms of withdrawal, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the elements was that the Taliban would sit across a table with the government negotiation team and reach a political decision. And so this is where the government was involved. After all the guarantees had been given to the Taliban, after they got everything they wanted, apparently there was still something left to negotiate with with the government for for the Taliban, Uh, which was at the end a, a complete joke. And, and, and failed miserably. But anyhow, I was involved in the delegation from the Republic, which went to Doha to negotiate with the Taliban. And what we realized very early on was that the Taliban are no, no longer serious because they've gotten what they wanted. They're just going to wait it out, wait out the Americans leaving. And Trump lost. Biden came and Biden reaffirmed the withdrawal date. And that's when the war on the ground. Shifted momentum in a way, and we started losing more and more territory, and it just started became it had a domino effect,
1: hmm.
0: um, and so very few people were involved in in the Doha peace process and have have that exposure or, or understanding, and I happened to be one of them. So uh, the Doha the Doha peace process signed between the Americans and the Taliban is probably one of the biggest foreign policy mishaps of the U.S. in in modern times. Uh, I mean, just look at the withdrawal. Just look at the way it ended. Mm -hmm. I mean, this could not have ended worse in a worse way. Um, And we lost the, the backbone of our security forces, the chain of command. All of it just completely broke. I had a lot of flaws. But the, the peace, the Doha peace deal specifically was aimed at weakening the armed forces. And so there's a very strong sense of betrayal. It's a very strong sense of being left out in the open and switching sides by the people who shoulder to shoulder fought alongside NATO in, in the U.S. against the Taliban and against Al-Qaeda and against uh, global terror for 20 years we 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 were the body bags we took the hit we, especially after 2014 80 90 percent of the war effort was all afghanistan national security forces ana Afghan national army Afghan national police um and yep just with the flick of a switch switch sides and you know just make peace be good now bye bye Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, you know, so it, it, it leaves a bad stain.
1: (laughs) So in, in August, when things started to unravel rapidly, where, where were you? So two weeks before the collapse, not knowing as the collapse,
0: um, I had taken my family because I saw that, I saw that things were getting really bad. So, you know, I, I my, my wife were, I was arguing with my wife to know we I need to relocate you guys somewhere outside and then I commute and come and go. So Turkey was accessible So to Afghans at that point. So at, uh, around two, two, three weeks before, I'd move them, settling them down, finding a place, school for my kids. And um, it was August 13th when um, Herat collapsed in the West major city in the West. And when Herat collapsed, I didn't have a return ticket. I was like, I have to go back to Kabul. Parents are in Kabul, siblings in Kabul. My everything's in Kabul. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be out. I have to be in. I've Mm -hmm. been out all my life. I need to be in when this happens now. Uh, I got a ticket, gave my COVID test, got the result. And a few hours, a couple hours before I had to go to the airport, I called a friend of mine who was in Kabul. I said, you know, I'm coming. He's like, don't come. No, I would, I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anybody because I know they would say don't come. Right. So I called this one friend of mine, and we've been through a lot together. He's been through a lot, and we understand so a lot of similar thinking. He said, don't come. Things are really bad. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm like, you're there. He's like, no, I'm getting out. I've actually changed my ticket. I'm, I'm, I'm coming out. He said, I moved my parents. I'm coming out. Things are not looking good. He said, uh, if you come. I said, look, things have been bad. All the time, we've been at the eye of the storm and he always looks worse from the outside. He's like, no, things are not the same. If you come back and you're stuck, you can't then help anybody. So I I canceled my ticket. A friend of mine who was supposed to be on the same flight, I told him I canceled my ticket because he's like, ah, don't worry, I'll go and come back. He went and he, (laughs) and you laugh about it now, what else can you do? So Saturday, Saturday morning, the flight arrives, Sunday, Kabul collapses. Sunday couple collapse. Yeah. And all hell breaks loose. It's it's horrible. Oh, it's horrible. Have you seen Walking Dead? The show The Walking I, Dead. I
1: have seen episodes of it. Yeah. So the show Walking Dead,
0: and I don't, and I don't want to sidetrack too much, but the show Walking Dead shows how society operates when all social norms collapse. Mm-hmm. Everything. Everything collapses. The, the most basic Rules of engagement in a social setting no longer stands true. Everything's a threat. You can't trust anybody. So Kabul went through that during a collapse. It's, it's, it's the worst possible, it's the worst possible setting. Um, and, uh, we've been through that many times when, you know, Ashraf Ghani fled news of his departure. There was no chain of command. Anything was fair game. Um, so it was, those were, those were very tough, very tough nights, but just by stroke of luck, my my wife and kids and I, we were out of the country, um, then the evacuations started. So we managed to get my brothers, uh, through to the airport. They missed the, the Abbey Gate bombing by a couple of hours. It passed by that point. Right? Okay, it's a couple of hours uh, when that when the um, explosion happened. So close calls, a lot of close calls, um, and then we didn't know what to do. So everything, everybody was just in shock. Everything. So I I I cut off everything and I went all in because that's what was my calling. That's what I wanted to do, and then I had lost everything. Mm -hmm. all of it, gone. And there was no plan B. I didn't have a, oh, okay, now I'm just going to do this. No, nothing. Nothing. And my wife just looked at me and she's like, I told you. Need a plan B. I said, I told you this is going to happen. I said, and I was like, what was I going to say? She was right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you feel betrayed on many, like you you, kind of think, okay, did I, was I, was I, was I an idiot being patriotic? Was I, a fool to believe in these ideals? Was it just wishful thinking? Do I regret? Could I have done, done things differently? So these are questions that I still kind of ask myself. Um, but I mean, when, every, when all fails, when you, a collapse does this, you question every single decision you've made in your entire life. Did I do anything right? was everything wrong? Mm. You know, am I to blame for all of this? Could I have saved or prevented this? Um, and so that's what I've been dealing with the past two years. And I think I'm much calmer now processed a lot of it, a lot of therapy. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it, it you reach a place where you realize that once you go through the emotional roller coaster of it and reach a level of clarity, you understand that um, you, your attachment to these notions becomes clear to you and you understand that uh, you understand that. You are, you are, you are living a life which you don't necessarily control. You are influenced by a lot of choices made elsewhere. But at the same time, you can only make decisions based on the information available to you at the time and based on what you believe is right. And that is what anybody can do at any point in time. And the rest is just hindsight and just rationalization. Um, and in hindsight, when I now look at it, I do not regret, I do not regret in any shape or form committing to try and make a better life for my people in my country, to make a family, to make a living and to develop roots in my own identity. And I am who I am because of my successes and failures and the risks I took. I could have gone south very quickly. You know, just one of those incidents.
1: There many points.
0: At many points, it was Friday. Mm-hmm. Friday is the weekend there. It was Friday. Mm-hmm. I got a call from. Yeah, a lot of people won't uh, understand. Uh, yeah, understand that Friday is a Friday Saturday. Yeah, so yeah, it was the weekend. Yeah, uh, I got a call early morning uh, from a uh, uh, relative of mine. He's like, "Oh, let's drive out of the city outskirts. Of the city Pavman. very beautiful green area, hilly area." So I'm like, uh, "Should I go?" Should I go? I'm like, "Okay, let's go." So this is early. This is 2013 or so. So I get in his car and I go and we're there enjoying the weather and I get a call from a friend of mine who lives nearby. He's like, are you okay? I'm like, what do you mean am I okay? I'm okay. He's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm outside. He's like, there was an explosion under your apartment
1: building. Like in a parking garage? There was was an explosion, a a car bomb, a car drove
0: right under the apartment building. My apartment was first floor. Yeah and it exploded and essentially the apartments facing the road where the car was everything just got smashed in and the target was a was a house across our apartment which had expats and apparently christian missionaries that was the justification right. for their for the explosion uh, and there was a, a t- complex attack. So the way complex attacks works is there's a car bomb and then the few people who were waiting and then they enter. Once the you know security apparatus is yeah, all blown off, they enter and then they start multiple massacring actions, people. Yeah.
1: Successive actions. And they just
0: start killing people. And so when they went in, so security forces came in on time and they rescued a lot of the kids and a lot of children there. So they were rescued. And so there was a fighting happening there for many hours. And so anyhow, that happened right under my apartment. So I come back. I come back at night and I'm walking in the rubble, which was the apartment,
1: and I'm like, "Huh? Guess I need a new apartment." Okay, no, no new apartment. No, 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 no. 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 You didn't move. No. So your was your unit affected, or was just the no? My unit was affected. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: No, it was just like one room was really badly damaged, so we had to replace the windows and some of them. We called the owner and whatever. He's like, "I'll fix this," and I just slept in the other room.
1: Yeah. yeah. Life goes on. Life goes
0: on. Right. Yeah. And this, yeah. yeah this Patch is, the road. Yeah. So, I mean, I have many stories sleep, like sleep, this. You know? Sleep <laughs> in a different room. Yeah. Sleep in a different room. So, so um, this is a son of a diplomat with uh, uh, an Ivy League degree who has traveled the world, who has access beyond your normal level of access that your average person would have um, and who has chosen to live this life, right? You, you, yeah. you kind of have to be a little crazy, right? You kind of have to be. I think it's kind of implied. Um,
1: but, but but purpose is funny that way, isn't it? it uh, right? Because it, it, to outsiders... it yes it's going to seem very bizarre and is. illogical. But, but if it's something me, that
0: grips you... Yes, there's that's, that is the path. Right. It's like falling in love,
1: you know? What can right. you do? Yeah. You do what it takes. So how long have you been in Toronto for with your family now? Um, a year now. It's been a year now. And what... So a year in Toronto, and, I mean, whether you paid any attention to Canadian, you know, democracy or... You know, Canadian defense and security um, before. I mean, what, what's your sort of impressions and what would your advice be for Canadians as someone who's, uh, who's come from a, uh, well, who's lived, I would say, many lives um, for a man who's not that old? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, I mean, what, what are your sort of I reflections? I feel like the reverse
0: Dorian Gray or <laughs> somehow, you know, there's a mirror that shows my true age. Right. <laughs> Um, I'm very grateful to be in Canada. Uh, I think to talk to my wife. I'm like, "How did we end up here?" She's like, "We have no idea. We just it just didn't. It just happened." Uh, very very grateful to be in Canada. Um, I think I think Canada and Afghanistan are, are connected in very interesting ways. Uh, I was, I was passing by the other day and it was a garage sale. I went through their books. They had a, they had an illustrative book called Canada's Wars. And I flipped to the last page and it was Afghanistan. That's true. So Canada, that is the last official deployment, like military deployment.
1: Yeah. I would say that's, that's Canada's. Uh, last uh, large-scale operate combat operation, combat operation. Yeah, yeah. so war. You know, yeah. I mean, You have peace deployments. You have Haiti. You have
0: other situations. Yeah, there's, there's
1: been other, um, obviously, other things going on in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. But certainly, I think everybody would point yeah. to that. Afghanistan as, as
0: the last war. Yeah, right.
1: So far, not combat. Hopefully, not conward. Conward, yeah. Yeah.
0: But um, so we're connected that way, you know, so I think so for, for, for Canadians, I would say, you know, if you want to know a bit more about your country, look, <laughs> look into that, you know, look mm-hmm. into that presence, look into what happened, look into Afghanistan, and I think, I think that there's a lot there. I see Canada, and then I look at Afghanistan, and um, we fail to, we fail to manage diversity we fail to manage linguistic diversity, ethnic diversity, ideological diversity. From a political structure point of view, uh, Canada has done that very well. Just the whole federal-provincial—I you know, mean, it's a heated conversation, of course. So. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, from coming from the completely other end of the spectrum, that you are. You are getting it right, and you need to make sure that you don't lose what you have. Uh, you know, temper headedness and emotional decision making is the worst possible thing that can happen. If something's you know not broken, don't fix it, but make sure you you make sure you're aware and you don't take it for granted. Afghanistan experienced uh, around half a century of peaceful. Uh, monarchy, and we were at we were at the edges of the British Empire, you know, from Amangal Lahan and so we uh, so Canada, and so in a way, we're connected in many ways. Mm. Um, and we took our stability for granted. And I know people, people, historians, paint Afghanistan as oh, a land. There was wars and killings and all that. You know, all that is just colonial talk. Put that aside. You know, as somebody from that country. We took our peace and stability for granted, we became complacent, we became arrogant, and uh we lost sight of the big picture, we lost sight of reality, and we entered uh, uh we entered a phase where it was a downward spiral. And we just couldn't get ourselves out of it. And we went from a, you know, a peaceful, fun loving country on the hippie trail where there are music concerts and people right. travel and drive <laughs> from Europe through Iran through Afghanistan and you know, get high at the foot of the Buddha statue uh, and enjoy Afghanistan's weather. That's the hippie trail. What is he going to do, right? I mean, right. that's what we were known for. People used to fly in from India and Delhi for the music concerts and festivals we used to have, to becoming this this uh, very intense place full of violence and killing and, and terrorists, and where the worst of the worst end up end up going. And no one is—I mean, I mean—no one is to blame but us. We allowed to be played as toys in these great games. Uh, and it was our complacency. it was the fact that we lost we lost sight of the of the big picture and so I say that, and I don't want to be bearer of bad news, but that's all I see in Canada. I see a, a generation of 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 people who just don't know how good they have it. And Canada is great. I was at a talk the other day and somebody used the term, Canada is probably one of the easiest countries in the world. I think the word easy is very apt, aptly Mm -hmm. used here. It's easy in so many ways, in so many ways. And one of the consequences of this is, when you live an easy life, you're not prepared if, if things start becoming a little shaky. And I think, I think I don't want to get into a political conversation, but I think that I'm sensing, uh, that, 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 that hunger for striving for improvement is becoming better. That hunger and that sense of urgency and that desire, it's very hard to find. I see it, but I, it's rare. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that to me is a massive red flag. It's just a massive red flag it, that people, that leaders, spiritual leaders, social leaders, political leaders... Uh, religious leaders, I think, need to come to a realization that hey, we need to we need to wake up because things are going to happen, and we're not going to be ready.
1: Plan B. I'll I'll, qu- I'll quote you back to you something you said to me a while ago uh, regarding well, whether it be democracy, um, you know, your the status quo in a country is that once the glass breaks, it's hard to put it back together. And I mean, you're just talking about the importance of, um, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But it does need to be maintained.
0: Oh yes, oh, needs to be protected, mm-hmm. to be guarded. I mean, who is who is who is guarding the Canadian way of life? Let's ask ourselves that question. Who are the gatekeepers? Who are going to sleep at night and waking up in, in the morning saying okay well, what's happening where are the threats coming from what how is our way of life what what am I doing to make sure that uh we are protected against threats whether it's whether it's the threat of of uh social tension or or you know issue of, you know, value clashes, or whether it's the military issues, security issues, uh, financial issues, like who's there? Like, I don't, like, I don't know, you know, every country has to have this class of people who are protectors. It's not the politicians. Let me tell you that. I watched the news here, I look at them, and I'm like, oh my God, this is all, this is not good. The politicians are the last people you need to look at, unfortunately. Um, I think there's just a sense that there's a, there's a f- f- free rider, if I may use that term, bit of, uh, attitude, you know, we, we have, we have somebody else taking care of that for us. We are smart because we have somebody else taking care of that for us. No, I'm sorry. That's not smart at all in any way, shape or form. If something happens, no one's going to show up, um, uh, on time for you. You need to show up for you. And uh, the way Ukraine is going, the way global tensions are, you know, it's a—it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to sound all, you know, negative and pessimist, but um, I think a healthy society needs to have your group of pessimists reminding everybody what the cost is of inaction and not being ready. I don't see that.
1: Last question for you then is uh, going to be the, the one that I wrap up all pa- podcasts with, which is uh, educate, entertain, or elevate.
0: Um, so I, uh, it's, it's a great ending, I guess. Um, maybe I'll go with two of those. Uh, might Maybe an obvious choice for some, but... Uh, I would highly recommend the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Um, uh, it's a it's a great movie. It's just an entertaining, entertaining movie to watch. But I think it kind of shows. It tries to show a little. I mean, it's it's some, it's it has a, this American bravado a little bit to it. But I think it tries to show the complexity of uh, what happened. Uh, plus, my father knew Charlie Wilson, and he he talks about. The secretaries, <laughs> so that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, fun fact. So I would, I would uh, highly recommend Charlie Wilson's War. It's very interesting uh, perspective on how things were uh, when the Soviets attacked. Uh, and I would uh, recommend a restaurant. I would recommend a non and uh, non and kebab uh, restaurant, Afghan food in Toronto. I'm not sure if they have in Ottawa or elsewhere, but they have a few branches in Toronto.
1: Schweib, this has been fantastic. Again, thank you for inviting me into your home. Uh, I, I find uh, your personal story fascinating. And uh, really, uh, thank you for sharing it uh, with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's been an
0: honor. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the, the, uh, the green tea with cardamom and uh, different flavors that we have in some of the dry food. And we, I hope that we'll enjoy the, the Afghan food
1: we'll have together after. Looking forward to it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can find links to Schweib's talk at the Monk School, information on the Doha Agreement, and his entertained recommendations on Afghan food and Charlie Wilson's war in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the NSP, and goodbye until next time.